say that uh, on the subject of anxiety of influence, following Charlie Williams, uh, we you I also was thinking during that first hour, we kept hearing about bad influences, and all, I kept hearing my mother telling me, such and so would be a bad influence. <laughs> and the problem was, whenever I heard that, I would uh, instantly get closer to that bad influence. And every time it was Emily Gason, right? <laughs> well, the problem is that I was born in Amherst, so <laughs> I was born under the sign of that influence. <laughs> And the final thing I was going to say before I start was it also came to mind. There's a wonderful poet from Iowa named Norman Duby who's taught in uh, Arizona for a long time. And he said two things I always keep in mind. One is that if a young poet falls in love with one poet, uh, they won't become a poet. But if a young poet falls in love with two poets, then they'll become a poet. And that I think points to that wonderful uh, uh, juxtaposition in, in John's opening remarks, you'll remember he kept uh, saying uh, imitation yeah. instead of yeah. influence. I thought, that's, that's exactly what we're after here. Norman also said, I am a professional reader and an amateur writer. When I become a, an amateur reader, then I'm in trouble. So I hope maybe what I'm going to talk about here will touch on some of the other issues we were talking about with concern with prose. This is kind of a little story. It was our custom to take a hike each year during the Breadloaf Writers Conference, generally in the second week, when the daily round of lectures, readings, workshops, and cocktail parties had lost some of its luster. The novelist Tom Gavin, a bearded, soft-spoken man who always wore a brown vest to match his leather satchel, had introduced me to contemporary poetry in a workshop over a decade before when I was a student at Middlebury College. And since my graduation, he had transformed himself so gracefully from mentor and guide to friend that I did not fully grasp the selflessness of his gesture. I just knew that the subjects raised in our correspondence during the school year, which ranged from the books we were reading to the nature of inspiration and belief, would animate our walk through the woods behind Middlebury's mountain campus. In late August in Vermont, there are hints of autumn at every turn, the opening pods of milkweed, the maple leaves reddening at their edges. And when we set out one day after lunch in broad sunshine, there was a tang in the air, which inspired our brisk pace down the road to the dirt driveway that led up the hill to the summer cabin of Robert Frost. Redlow's presiding spirit. From the porch, we looked over a meadow toward a mountain which lay in a bluish haze, and it came to me that despite my ambivalence about Frost's achievement during my undergraduate years, a, liter a literature student could hardly escape his work in advanced seminars. I had nevertheless fallen under his influence. More of his lines were in my memory than those of any other poet, and I had written my share of nature poems. Literary influences are notoriously difficult to trace. What looms largest in one's imagination may be hardest to discern. And my relationship to Frost is complicated in the extreme. I did not like his greatest advocate at Middlebury, the poet in residence who shall remain nameless. And yet his poems shape my life 
and have continued to shape my life. We walked on into the grove of Norway maples behind the cabin, which stood in even rows like lines of relentlessly regular verses. <laughs> and in the shade, our talk turned to issues facing us on the page. Tom had, from our very first encounter, shared his experiences as a writer, for good and ill, so that I might understand something about the mysteries of the creative process. Thus, in one class, he told us that when he was reading a book to his young daughter, she remarked that the quarter moon through her bedroom window looked like a fingernail. I erased for my notebook, he said, a revelation that for someone like me not in the habit of taking notes was instructive. On another occasion, he said that well into his first novel, King Kill, he realized that of the four main characters, the sole woman had not come to life on the page. So he took three months off from writing the novel and instead recorded in his journal every thought, memory, and fantasy he had ever had about women in an imaginative effort to connect with his feminine side. When he returned to the novel, he found himself able to draw the female lead in vivid detail, and indeed she is perhaps the most dynamic presence in that book. And again, one day he said that when he showed the first 125 pages of King Kill to John, Fixter, to John Gardner, a fixture at Breadloaf, he received a crucial piece of advice, that it might be useful to consider varying the rhythm for the next section of the book, which is to say, change tempo. The effect was profound. Experimenting with time signatures will lead the writer and will keep the writer and the reader alike alert to the deeper promptings of the language and the spirit. Of course, these three lessons apply to poetry too. And here I should add that Tom remains the most astute critic of my poems because he brings to the page not only a reverence for poetic tradition, but the gift of listening, which is in my view the key to writing. What, we, what do we do if not listen to the language and to teaching? Friendship, of course, thrives on the ability of at least one person, and preferably both people, being able to practice what has been called deep listening. Uphill we went on a narrowing trail, and it was some time before we arrived at an abandoned uh, homestead whose furthering deterioration we marked from year to year. These woods are thick with ruins such as Frost described in Directive, which ends with those memorable lines, here are your waters and your watering place, drink and be whole again beyond confusion. And this tumble-down house was for us the spur to reflect on the continuing legacy of John Gardner, whose final novel, Nicholson's Ghosts, might have been inspired by it. The story, Peter Nicholson, a renowned philosopher who bears more than a passing resemblance to the novelist, he teaches at SUNY Binghamton, his finances are in shambles owing to a nasty divorce, he feels out of step with his contemporaries despite the fact that his writings on ethics have earned him wide acclaim. And he's close to John Gardner, whose book on moral fiction fueled literary battles long after his untimely death in a motorcycle accident a week before he was to wed for the third time. 
It is not a stretch to say that Gardner's influence on my life was the most pivotal one of all. The experience was fleeting, a single encounter on an afternoon, but transformative. And I hope that in our discussion, we will explore some of the differences between the shaping influences of a book, an encounter, an apprenticeship, academic or otherwise, and friendship, each of which may prove decisive. It occurred near the end of my first visit to Breadloaf, an experience that until that point had been a disappointment, assigned to the workshop of a well-known poet who also shall remain nameless, suffice to say that he was much more interested in sleeping with his female students than in reading my fledgling poetic efforts. I had fallen into despair, imagining that there was no future for me as a writer if I could not even keep my teacher's attention in a one-hour private conference <laughs> for more than a minute, his eyes darting around the barn in which students congregated, a bottle of vodka wedged under his arm. And so it was that on the last day of the conference, for reasons that remain inexplicable, I screwed up the courage to approach Gardner the only faculty member to be found in the barn when he wasn't obliged to be there, to ask him if he would be willing to look at my work. I'll read until I get bored, he said. <laughs> well, I thought, this won't be, this will be short. And as he began, and, and with that he began to read, using his pencil to strike out a couple of words. My heart was pounding, and indeed, it was not long before he leaned back in his chair <clears throat> and looked at me. You're a writer, he said. And then for the next four and a half hours, he talked to me about what that might mean. The sacredness of the, of the vocation, the writing exercises I needed to do. He explained to me how he had come to write a book on the art of fiction, being confined to a hospital bed and having he had just been operated on for, cancer, for stomach cancer. And he realized then that he had so much to say that he asked for a manual typewriter to be propped on his stomach where he typed this book out in a matter of weeks. The reading, the revisions, the work, it was quite simply the event that changed the course of my life. What did he see in my writing that made him give me so much of his time? Perhaps an eye for detail or an instinct for rhythm. More likely, though, I, though I am fond of saying that one thing the teacher cannot gauge is the depth of the student's desire to be a writer, I think that he sensed or saw how desperate I was to become a writer. And after four hours of stories and instruction, and here's my favorite, just as an aside, I, I, uh, he told me that, here's how he wrote Grendel, he was spinning out plots for a class and saying, here's how, you, here's how you do a plot, here's this, this. And then he suddenly said, Tell, retell the story of uh, Beowulf from the monster's point of view. And he said, I looked around the room, I put my papers into my briefcase, I walked out, and I didn't come back for six weeks until I finished writing the book. <laughs> I said to him, it's a great book. And he said, no, it's a perfect book. <laughs> it's a perfect book. Then he said something that has stayed with me. And actually, everything has stayed with me. If you work hard for 10 years, he said, you will succeed as a writer. 
Success will mean different things to different people. For some, it will mean fame or fortune. For others, it will be the joy of creation, what the poet Brewster Giesman liked to call the life of discovery. And for still others, it may be the validation of the, of the inner life. More than anything, it is the pleasure of work that one gains from a literary apprenticeship, which in my country now routinely takes place in a writing program of which there are some 200 graduate programs around the country. Gardner was a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which he thought I should attend. But when I told him that I wanted to move to the West Coast, he suggested that I apply to the University of Washington, where his student, Charles Johnson, taught. There I had the good luck to study with Johnson and Leslie Norris, Bill Matthews, and many others. And in this connection, I should quote a, a wonderful line by Matthews, who once wrote, and while I'm at it, I'd like to thank my teachers, though not all of them, and, and they know who they are. <laughs> I think we do learn by negative example, right? Actually, it makes me think of, uh, I had another teacher, Mark Strand, a wonderful poet, maybe not a very good teacher, but you'll remember his famous poem, In a Field, I'm the Absence of Field. And we were talking earlier about parodies, and one of my classmates wrote, in a classroom, I am the absence of intelligence. It's always this way. And that poem ends, we all, we all need reasons for moving. I move to keep things whole, and his poem ended. We all need reasons for speaking, except me. <laughs> of my teachers, the most remote was David Wagoner, who nevertheless gave me some, some of the most important advice, which he had learned from editing the notebooks of his teacher, Theodore Retke which he was happy to pass on to another generation of poets. To wit, the importance of surrendering into the language, or writing wildly in every direction without concern for form or meaning, with the hope of scaring up something from the unconscious that in the next writing sessions might be crafted into a poem, a play, or a novel. He worked in all three genres, in effect, to get lost with the hope of, fi of eventually finding one's way on the page. This was based not only on his own uh, editing of uh, Retke, but on personal experience. And I thought that I would just read you one of his poems, which seems to me a faithful transcription of a story that he told us in that workshop. It's called Staying Found, and it happened soon after he moved from Erie, Ohio, Lake Erie, Ohio, uh, Erie, Ohio, or Indiana? No, no, right? Uh, oh, Gary. Gary. Gary, Indiana. Uh, to uh, the Pacific Northwest, where uh, Rethke had recruited him to teach. And the poem is called Staying Found. It begins with an epigraph from uh, Branford Angier called How to Stay Alive in the Woods. We come, become lost not because of anything we do, but because of what we leave undone. We stay found by knowing approximately where we are every moment. He stood alone at the almost washed away road by the rainforest, caught by its impossible greenness. He started walking toward it, bewildered by a wilderness he'd only half imagined among the mills and ruined lakes of his childhood. He walked on moss as deep as his strange shoes, more softly than he'd ever walked, more quietly in a rain that fell without falling, through an air softer than water, on earth, 
on a resurrected earth whose fire was wildflowers, glistening suns and moons of berries, dawns of gold lichen, and scarlet sporophytes like spearheads guarding a nurse log where young cedars rose from the graves of ancestors. Once 200 feet or 200 or more feet above his feet and theirs were huge others that closed the sky between him and the sky. He stood among small, perfectly neglected and cared for children in a virgin forest and found himself. But when he turned, he was lost. One moment he had been healed, he had forgotten the defeated trees, the flowers starving in poisonous wind and rain, the dead ground where he had tried to grow. In another moment, he had learned a different way of dying called here and now, called there and where and nowhere. When he stumbled onto the road again, his mind had changed. He was no longer lost in the woods, or in cities as he had always been, not knowing it, now he would stay found. And Bill Matthews made, I think, the very smart point that in every one of Wagner's books, he find a poem of his something like that about being lost. Perhaps you will have seen the final turn of my essay coming for some time, that Tom, Gavin, and I soon got lost, taking the wrong fork at a juncture close to what we called Gardner's house, what Frost might have called the house that was no more a house. We made, for in the, uh, and for hours we walked in gathering anxiety, our sweat-soaked shirts cooling as the sun dropped and the air turned autumnal. We made one bad decision after another, taking logging roads for a distance then doubling back to a fort that seemed to have vanished bushwhacking through thick underbrush, circling one clear cut and then another, stopping and starting. I recited Wagoner's poem, and it was Tom who managed to collect his wits long enough that we, to suggest that we stop and, and listen. And whatever it was that he heard, whatever it was that prompted him to move in the right direction, I remain haunted by those long minutes when we stood at the edge of, 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 at the edge of the woods, wondering which way to go. What relief we felt when we finally emerged at the pond behind the bar as the sun was dipped behind that mountain, turning black now in the late afternoon, and what dread those woods inspired in me for the next couple of days. That dread then turned to curiosity, and soon I was hiking there again on my own.